This is Adina Blaustein, Content Production Manager at Aleph Beta. Parshat Noach describes a world filled with violence, Hamas, and God's decision to destroy the world with a flood. This feels too familiar in light of the recent horrific attacks on Israel. So for this week's episode, Rabbi Foreman and Imushalev sat down to reflect on what to make of those parallels. I hope you find their discussion as meaningful as I did. Hello and welcome everybody to another episode of Into the Verse. This is normally a Parsha podcast. I'm here with Rabbi Foreman. Um, and I say normally a Parsha podcast, but we're uh, in our, our second week uh, into a, a war in Gaza after the horrible, horrible attacks this past Simchat Torah. And, you know, this is a podcast where we, as I said, we normally try to teach Parsha, but it's very hard to, to do that right now. And so for this week, as well as last week, I'm joined by Rabbi Foreman just to, to talk about what's going on uh, today, maybe give some people a measure of comfort if we can do that or, or some way of thinking about what's going on today. Rabbi Foreman, welcome. It's a privilege to be able to talk to you, albeit under difficult circumstances. You know, you began by mentioning that uh, we weren't going to talk about Parsha, so I'm going to be contrarian as usual and talk about Parsha for a minute. I was volunteering a little bit and, and hanging out at the Great Synagogue of Jerusalem, which has been turned into a, a volunteer center to aid residents of the South. And I was chatting with two Sherut Lumi young women uh, who were there and had switched their Sherut Lumi duties, their national service duties from whatever they were doing to helping out at the Great Synagogue. They were all big Aleph Beta fans, and knowing that I was an Aleph Beta guy, they ran something by me. They said, isn't it weird what this week's Parsha is? Because this week's Parsha is all about Hamas. Which is a you know pretty chilling statement that the world is filled of Hamas because of them. And here I am ready to destroy the world. But the word mashchit is a really interesting word for destroy also. Just for, just for our listeners who don't understand uh, exactly or don't, don't know, this week's Parsha uh, talks about how the world was filled with, uh, with evil before God destroyed it in the flood. But one of the words that uses to describe um, how the world was filled with a kind of evil is Hamas. That word is translated as violence. Uh, it's yeah. uh, the current uh, iteration of Hamas in the world didn't look in Genesis and name themselves after no. it. That's uh, not what it means in Arabic, but it is pretty remarkable that this word for for violence that God sort of looks at and says, "No, I, I need to destroy the world because it's filled with such violence." That word in Hebrew is Hamas. And you know, I think also when you look at what happened, really, you know, I was I was sort of meditating on this this morning. You know, it's like. Yeah, if Hamas really wanted to achieve some objectives, and they had asked me what to do, you know, I would have told them, like, if you, because I, I was searching, like, what objective do you possibly have? I was chatting with Neria Klein, another biblical scholar, and he just made the point that it's such an inexplicable attack, because what did they do? They they took over a couple army bases for a few hours, and then were all killed, and, like, what did they achieve long term? So, what if Hamas had just gone and taken over eight army bases— they would have had much more of the world on their side. They wouldn't have Israel on their side. We'd still be outraged. An unprovoked attack on soldiers is not a good thing. It's still terrorism. But what's completely inexplicable and what has gotten the world up in arms is this sort of 
unprovoked attack on civilians with just incredible barbarism. And really the only word you can have for it is, you know, it's the kind of thing that if that was widespread in the world, you can imagine God looking at that and saying, I'm just going to get rid of the world. There's really no point in going forward anymore. Uh, that sense of right? the world being filled with a kind of violence where violence is not just a means, but it is an end, right? Almost like this end in and of itself, just to be as violent as you possibly can. It's nothing other than an outrage. It's simply an outrage with an exclamation mark. And all of a sudden you can imagine like, gee, there are things that human beings can do that are such an outrage that, you know, you could sort of see God being like, hey, I'm going to destroy the world. And it also struck me that that word, is this interesting word, like that word mashchit really doesn't just mean to destroy. It feels to me like the English doesn't quite get the full flavor of the Hebrew. It's corruption. It's uh... it's corrupt. It's twisted. It has a sense of twistedness. It's almost like I'm going to twist them off of the earth almost as a repayment for whatever twistedness is in violence, as if violence itself is a twisted, twisted thing. The verses you're reading, and, and what you're noticing is an exact parallel. You're reading the, the part where God is reacting to the violence of the, the earth and saying that he's yes. going to destroy the, the earth, but just two verses above, we're in uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. It describes how the, the world was corrupted, right? It says, yeah. And in that first usage, it doesn't mean the world was destroyed. In that first usage, right before the flood, it just means that we sort of self-destroyed the world or we sort of corrupted the world, right? We obviously, nobody went around and, and flooded the world, but through the actions of terrible violence, the world became corrupted. And, and then it says, Hamas, it was filled with terrible violence. And, it, you know, if you just sort of meditate on what you just said in that verse 11, the world was twisted. That were corrupted before God, in as much as the world was filled with violence. It's interesting, right? It, what that suggests is that when violence becomes a thing, an end in and of itself, maybe, right? That, that's the sense. The world becomes full of it. So to me, one of the things that says is there's a trickle-down effect, right? I grew up in the age of, I'm dating myself here, but uh, Ronald Reagan and Reaganomics, which was famously trickle-down economics, this notion that if you uh, could somehow make the people at the top of the food chain, the really comfortable people, much more comfortable, then benefits would trickle down to the rest of society. It's almost like violence has a trickle-down effect. Violence of humans has a trickle-down effect on the world, on the ecosystem as a whole, in as much as man has sort of this role of executive vice president of creation, this mm -hmm. caretaker of creation, when man corrupts his own role and is that when the caretaker becomes violent for violence's sake, then that is not just about him. That affects the world. If you look at that language in, in verse 12, and God looked at the world and it was it was corrupt because all flesh had corrupted their ways. There, somehow there was an effect on the animals too, and an effect on literally the earth as a whole became ruined. And so God says, look, i gotta, I got to rebuild the world. But So it just strikes me that there are certain things that you can do that are localized, but there's something about extreme violence for the sake of violence 
that has these ripples effects that are just unintended consequences. And I think you see it in society. You know, we're in the early days of this, and we don't know where this will go. And it's horrifying to think that Hamas has 200-plus captives that are at their mercy in tunnels, and and who knows what the days ahead have. But there's, you know, the scenes of slaughter and destruction. I don't know. There's a part of you, like, you know, you think, well, you have to bear witness to this. But there's a part of me that feels like, I don't know, extreme violence, a, a horror movie that's real life has these these unintended consequences. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being a namby-pamby American. I mean, look, there's soldiers who are going to have to confront this kind of violence and don't get to have that barricade that we have the luxury of having of looking away or not looking away. When it's only pictures, you can look away. When it's real life and it's right in front of you, there is no there is no looking away. So I don't know. My only point is, is that that violence for the sake of violence is something that has consequences, consequences on perpetrators of it, certainly, and of those who are around it and complicit with it. And I think, you know, if there's anything you take away from the flood story, it's the pernicious nature of violence. It's not something that you do and you accept responsibility for. It bleeds out into the world in ways that are maybe unforeseen by the perpetrators. I think um, your point is well taken. And I think what you're saying is, you know, you don't want to watch the scenes of violence because what you're seeing in in Noah, and not that you needed the Parsha to tell you this, is that when you see these really gruesome, real events, they have an effect on your soul. Like whether we can qualify it or measure it or say, you know, like actually take like a ruler and say, look, this is what it did to your soul. Like, but But we kind of know intuitively that being exposed to this actually can hurt you. It can hurt your soul in some way. Now, you know, then then there's like, okay, there's all kinds of judgments we can have. Oh, so you're saying you shouldn't see it. And, you know, no, I'm not saying any of those things. We're just noticing that violence has a tendency to, to corrupt. You know, I'm actually doing a piece right now with Beth in Meaningful Judaism that happens to touch on these verses. And um, one of the arguments that, that I make is is it's a play on the first vatimale anything in the Torah, which is right what God says to humanity right after He creates them in Genesis one in last week's parsha is pru urvu umilu etaretz be fruitful multiply and fill the earth. Genesis six begins with you know the beginning is mankind actually start is starting to have lots of kids. It starts off saying this is the story where mankind has lots of kids. But what happens is that word revu from pru revu ends up applying to evil, right? There's, uh, yeah, vayar Hashem ki rabah ra'at ha'adam ba'aretz, right? So instead of mankind proliferating or in addition to mankind proliferating, evil is proliferating. And vatimale ha'aretz hamas, the land is filled with, with violence. So instead of humanity, pru revu milu, you have evil and violence filling the earth. And that, that to me, just another, is another way of describing the corruption of God's original intention. God's original intention is to fill the world with life and the caretakers of life. Humanity is created in the image of God, and their charge is to take care of the earth. And instead, it's sort of the, the exact opposite of that. Why am I saying all of this? I'm saying all of this because one thing I am heartened by, and that I do see over and over again, 
is not merely the filling of the earth with violence, but the filling of the earth with life. That's what I see. Here at Aleph Beta, we, we raised more than $100,000 from one email asking who can we support, right? How, how do we, and everybody wants to participate. Everybody wants to do something right now to take care of their brothers and sisters. What, what you're doing, right? Like, you, it's hard to get a hold of Rabbi Foreman these days. He's got a lot of responsibilities at Aleph Beta, but he's across the street at the Great Synagogue helping with volunteer efforts, right? Like, everybody wants to help right now. I'm seeing it physically. I'm seeing, you know, people getting up and participating in the army or participating with chesed, participating, getting hotel rooms and, and food and, and picking up the, the, the survivors. I'm seeing people doing it spiritually, the prayer groups and the just the, the outpouring of love and emotional support. So I don't feel like we can say only. I think like jury's out on humanity right now. There is violence that threatens to fill the earth, but there's a tremendous outpouring of love, of life, of of taking care of, of of others that I'm seeing as well too. I think you're right about that, and I also think that um, that I think part of this instinctive push that I'm seeing in Israeli society to overcome division and to bring good into the world across so many different strats, just everybody's feeling it. You don't need to be religious, you don't need to be Haredi, you don't need to be, just drop all of your labels. There's this sense of two things, A, coming together, right? The, this sense that one of the most fundamental aspects of good is unity and connection, and people are doing that, and then just trying to to come out of yourself and be a force for life in the world. And I think one of the reasons why it's such a instinctive thing is I think to redeem that sense of evil. I think we're trying to, in some deep way, do something for our souls so that our souls aren't tainted by this incredible outpouring of evil in society. Because if that's all you have and then you go about your daily life, you can't barricade yourself away from that evil. It's going to bleed. It's going to into you. It's going to contaminate you. Like literally, you're going to feel dirty. You're going to wake up and want to take. A, you just want to take three showers a day for just living in the same world as this kind of evil. And another way of doing that, of taking those showers, right, is to immerse yourself in the kind of anti-evil, a kind of instead of division, togetherness, instead of hatred, love. And I know that sounds like a cliche, but if you see it happening, it's not a cliche. I'll just tell you a couple stories here, and I'll, I'll, I just want to relate to you some of the stories I'm seeing about yeah, that me. here. But one that that is vivid, that really gets to this idea of of, of life as opposed to death, I'll just tell you a story. I'm in a hotel right now, an apartment in a hotel in central Jerusalem, which is now housing 400 families from the south. Two philanthropists got together and worked with the hotel to put these guys up originally for Shabbos, and then they couldn't bear to say only for Shabbos, and now it's for a week, and you know we'll see how long it goes. And I have these I call them elevator conversations, right? Where do I meet these people? I meet them in the elevator. So in the elevator, I'll ask people, okay, who are you? Where are you from? And I'll get a little bit of, it's like literally an elevator pitch. I'll get a little bit of their story. They're from two places in the South, um, the sort of outer ring of the violence, the places that didn't have it quite so bad, Kfar Maimon 
and Nativot. Now, Kfar Maimon was evacuated. Everybody in Kfar Maimon was a mandatory evacuation and a closed military zone had to leave. But Nativot, that's just outside of this, is a larger city which was not mandatorily evacuated. But there's four families in the hotel from Nativot as well. So I'm chatting with them about their stories. And and I'll tell you about some of them in a minute. But uh, one day, I'm walking Rosh Chodesh. We just went through Rosh Chodesh. So the Great Synagogue had a special Rosh Chodesh davening where I think they were looking to counter the sense of death and mourning and loss. And they decided, look, Rosh Chodesh is halal. There's nothing you can do about it. You you sing halal, these praises, these joyous, ecstatic praises. It doesn't feel like anybody wants joy in their lives right now, but what are you going to do? It's halal. So they said, like, you know, let the obstacle be the path. That Sometimes you think that there's an obstacle in your way, and uh, it's getting in the way of you going down the path you want to in life, but sometimes the obstacle is the path, right? You just don't realize what path you're supposed to be on. Your job is to confront the obstacle. That's your path. So the Great Synagogue decided they're going to do their thing around Halal. They're going to bring in musical accompaniment, and they're going to go to town on Halal. They're going to invite in all of these guys from the South, and they're going to have singing and dancing in Halal like for real, the way you never have in shul. And lo and behold, everybody showed up. My kids went. My wife went. We all went. And there was this wonderful halal. And I'm walking out of there, a musical halal and dancing. And I'm walking out of there. And a fellow who I didn't know said, what did you think of that? And I said, I, I was pretty moving. He said, I couldn't stop crying. You know, that was, that was so moving to me. I said, tell me about, your, like, what, what's your story? Are you staying at the hotel with these with with these evacuees? He said, "Yes, um, I'm the guy who made the wedding in the hotel last night." Turns out that the night before there was a little wedding in the hotel. Now, the Leonardo Plaza in Jerusalem does lots of weddings, and this was, but it was, this was a wedding like no other. It was supposed to happen in the south. That it got canceled. It was in a closed military zone, so the the plaza took him in. And they did this wedding there. He says, let me tell you a story. There's a woman who came up to my daughter, the bride, under uh, during the Badekin, when the veil was, comes down, and wanted to give her a bracha. Now, usually a bracha is given by the parents, you know, but this person wanted to give, give her a bracha. So he, here's what she said. She said that, you know, last week I was in the South, and we woke up on Simchat Torah morning, and I remarked to my husband how there's two soldiers outside, right outside our garden. And my husband looked through the window at the soldiers and said, those aren't Israeli guns. Close the windows and get to the safe room. And we all went to the safe room, and the terrorists came in the house and rampaged through the house, but didn't find them, and they survived. They survived because their husband was sharp enough to see that there was something off in the disguise. The guns were not standard Israeli guns. So that these these were soldiers who were impersonating Israeli soldiers. They were in Israeli uniforms. They were Hamas uniform, terrorists right. who were there mm-hmm. specifically to try to lure people out um, and to to try to create a sense of safety when in fact wow. they were the terrorists. And she said to the bride, you know, last week I had terrorists rampaging through my house. And this week I'm here to give you a blessing and to bless new life as you join together with your, uh, you know, with, with your husband. And she was ecstatic to be able to do that. And 
there's that sense of A, coming together, and B, embracing a new family and embracing new life, almost as this instinctive act that is the the counter to terrorism, that if there's a moment of love in the world, a man and a woman coming together to form a new family, to embrace that moment with all of the passion that you can muster as a way of turning your back on the evil that you were victimized with and say, I'm not a victim, I can embrace new life, is what these guys are all about. It's amazing that that's the story you're sharing with me. It, it's... Um... It's very emotional, but um, it also feels like a, there's an element of, of synchronicity to it. The um, I, I myself, like I've been, I haven't shielded myself from the videos. Uh, I'll watch every single one of them, and there's a part of me screaming inside, like saying, "Don't watch this! Like this is not something you should watch." And there's a, another part of me that says, "Like you need to bear witness." And you know, so far that part has won every time. Uh, so I, I feel like it's my responsibility to see everything that I can. And I haven't cried. I've been horrified. I have nightmares. I can't stop thinking about them. But I haven't cried. And I was at the gym two days ago, just trying to keep some semblance of routine. And I'm listening to uh, a podcast that's describing some of the stories I've been listening to. Um, I think it's called uh, Israel Story. And every day there's another story. And and they're, the stories that I keep hearing are, you know, of, of tragic circumstances. And they had this one story of a bride, of somebody who her wedding was supposed to be the Monday after Simchat Torah. And she, she describes how she wakes up and uh, there's a siren and, and she finds out that, uh, you know, finds out what, ha- what happens and she's getting condolence texts, texts all day. Like she, she's not there, but, you know, everybody seems to know that this is possibly ruining her wedding and and she uh, but she learns very quickly her mother-in-law tells her like you're getting married like we we don't postpone smachot we don't postpone happy occasions uh, she's like I, I just i can't right now i, I don't want to i don't want to be happy right now i don't want to get married this isn't the wedding i pictured and she describes how her wedding came to be how it was moved to this like municipal garden how the entire town showed up, how just everybody in a time where you would think that they would be dedicating their efforts to to anything but this showed up and made this their simcha. And I just started crying. I, I don't know why all the other things that I've seen didn't get me, but this is the one that got me. And I just sat on the floor and tears just came. Yeah. I, I don't know what it is, and, and maybe we're giving some words to it, but when the world is filled with evil to see people getting together and say, we don't postpone smachot, we do not postpone happy occasions, you, you grab them when they come. And everybody, I don't know, maybe it's a way of, of us declaring in our values what is most important to us, that um, even in the, the deepest tragedies, it's the, this is what we live for. We live for families being built. We, we live for life. We live for kindness. Um, and and uh, I don't know, something about that really brought the tears. So to hear you tell a story uh, of a wedding and a bride receiving blessing from someone who had terrorists in her, in her house, like, uh, I don't know, there's there's something about yeah. that. I, and I think I've also found that, I mean, I, I've found myself 
I'm usually not a crying guy too much. I don't like sit here and cry all the time, but I found myself, you know, always just a moment away from tears. And, but it's usually the happy things that make me cry and the, the, the poignancy and the beauty of people coming together that make me cry. And I wonder if it's just like, as you're just saying it, it's like the evil is too scary to cry at. It's so shocking. It's so numbing. It's so it's so horrible that it feels like tears aren't enough. You're just you can't get there yet. You're just in shock. So the, it's almost like the only way you can relate in some kind of real way to what's going on is through its inverse, is through the joy or through the beauty and through the happiness. And I think some of the tears that we have in seeing all that beauty is because it's our way of processing the evil. If we can relate to the to the opposite of it, it lets us cry for the for the for the pain. And because without the sugar, you can't make the medicine go down. You can't you can't you can't touch the pain. It's too it's too it's too terrible. Yeah, I'm numb. I'm too numb. Yeah. Um, I was chatting with one of the philanthropists who put up these 400 people in the, in the hotel. He mentioned that there was a kid. It was funny because this past Shabbos, um, a week after the massacre, I had the most surreal Shabbos in the hotel. There was a bar mitzvah. I didn't really know the backstory of the bar mitzvah, but there was a bar mitzvah. And Kfar Maimon was there, like all of Kfar Maimon. Uh, this yeshuv was here in the hotel. It was the strangest davening, but most beautiful davening I've ever been a part of. We had Vizosa Bracha and Bracious daven put together as a Kishahin Mechubaram, as a double Parsha, which never, ever happens. But they were all in their homes. None of them had the chance to read Vizota Bracha. And so this was their chance to read it during Shabbos Brashit. So they figured out a way to do it with the Aliyahs. And then they had two hakafas at the end, and their hakafas were joyous but very short, and every song they sang was a song that, you know, is that seemed like a cliché on a regular Simchas Torah, but doesn't seem like a cliché anymore. Am Yisrael Chai, right? Nation of Israel Lives. Um, Shomrim Hafged Le'ircha, a prayer to God place watchmen on on our gates. Ana Hashem Hashiana, God, uh, please save us. And so here they've got the dancing going, and they did that double parsha, and then they say Avinu Malkenu um, on Shabbos. The only time you do that is during the Elah, is to say Avinu Malkenu on Shabbos, the the that plea to God who's our father and our king, uh, they just went through it one by one, all of it out loud, with everyone saying amen. And then this little dance for the bar mitzvah boy. Um, and I was chatting with this philanthropist about the story. He said, you know what the story with this bar mitzvah kid is? That he was in one of these uh, areas right next to the evacuation zone. The kid's best friend was killed on Wednesday. On Tuesday, his house was destroyed in a missile attack completely destroyed in Nitivot. And then he has this bar mitzvah on Shabbos. He couldn't have the bar mitzvah in Nitivot, so they found out he's going to have a bar mitzvah, so they made him a bar mitzvah, and they had a, 
you know, they danced together on Tuesday, and a bunch of yeshiva guys from Eshatar and from uh, from uh, the Mir came and and filled it all in, and they brought presents, and um, and this was the bar mitzvah in the middle of this of this avinu malkenu davening, and it all came together, all that mix up of pain and joy. Mm. So it's it's been been quite a time. Yeah. Um, the uh, I'll tell you about one of my elevator conversations. It was another guy from Nitivot, fellow uh, by the name of Maor. Um, he said, "What are you doing here? Are you you're from America? I, you know, everybody from America left." I said, "Yeah, you know, sticking around a little bit, seeing what we could do to help." He was so happy. He says, "You have no idea how much that, you know, lifts our spirits." Thank you so much for being here. And so I said, "Tell me your story in the Tivot. How come you're here in the Tivot? wasn't wasn't evacuated?" So he said, "I'm here because of Kibbutz Aim." So I said, "What do you mean you're here because of Kibbutz Aim?" Says so you know what it says about kibbutzavim laman yarichun yamecha that kibbutzavim lengthens your life. So I'm here because of kibbutzavim honoring your father and mother. It's one of the few mitzvahs in the Torah that are specifically the reward comes with that that you have a lengthened life. So I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I live in Nativot and we wanted our parents to come to us for Yom Tov, and they didn't want to come to us for Yom Tov. They were happy to stay home, but we wanted to be with them. So finally, we said, okay, you win. If you don't want to come to us for Yom Tov, we're going to come to you. So they all packed up, even though they really wanted to host their parents at their place, and went to their parents' house and left Nativot. Well, they left Nativot, but when they came back, they had seen that their home had taken a direct missile strike oh to the bedroom God. and was completely destroyed. Oh and God. had they been there, they wouldn't be around to tell the tale. It literally was, They were oh there because of Kibbutz And he was so happy, but he was homeless, but he was alive, and his family was alive, and and there they were. So these are the kind of elevator stories uh, that you uh, that you got in here. The stories coming out are are uh, I don't I'm supposed to assign an adjective to it. It's just um, there there are harrowing stories, and there are are stories of uh, miraculous. perseverance of, of survivorship. Yeah, Emo, I'll just leave you with one other thought and uh, and maybe we'll say goodbye for this week. You know, El Al has a slogan, Hachiba Bayit Ba'olam, mm-hmm. the place that feels most home in the world where you step on the plane, you're still in New York, but you feel you're already at home. That's their slogan. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of El Al stories. I just want to read you an El Al story from this morning and um, and take you out with this with this story so this is somebody i don't know but just posted on our neighborhood on our neighborhood ramat kivatsev here in israel in their whatsapp group he says on tuesday morning i was returning to israel this tuesday morning just a couple hours ago from tokyo through bangkok and before boarding the plane from bangkok to israel the terminal is full of young backpackers who wanted to return to israel to join the army reserves and upon boarding uh the airline announced that all those who still don't have a seat should wait, and they're actually going to try to get everybody on the plane, which is like unusual. In other words, it's not just like Joe and Sam, your standby. It's just like everybody who's here who who can't get on the plane, just we're, we're going to try to work with you. And there were these dozens and dozens of young people that, that couldn't get on the plane because the plane was too packed. And so LL, they, you know, they filled up all the available seats on the plane, 
and there are all these couple dozen people who couldn't get on. And to his surprise, after the crew finished filling the plane, the El Al um, staff took more than 20 young women and they put them on the plane, you know those jump seats? And put them on the jump seats. So there's these fold-down seats that you can uh, that you can sit in, which are for the crew. They put them in all the fold-down seats. And after that, the captain gave permission for the men, for 10 young men, to actually sit on the floor of the plane in the kitchens and then the galleys and near the emergency exit doors. And, you know, he says in his entire life, I've never seen a flight where dozens of people are sitting on the floor. During the whole flight, they slept on the floor wherever possible, including near the cockpit, on the floor in business class, and every corner of the plane. Um, and the captain's walking around during the flight, making sure that the crew was taking care of all these wonderful people who didn't really have seats. And so this isn't something you normally do, and these aren't normal times, but it's beautiful to see that. I think it's it's incredible to to in that story that this isn't a, a story of a plane fleeing an area, right? This is not get everybody you could possibly yeah. get in the galleys and on the floors and the aisles because yeah. we're running away. These are people who are running back. These are people yeah. who who want to help. And that that's what really moves me about this story is, um, is just trying to find your way to facilitate the love, the care, um, the, the pride to go home and to help. Um, yeah, it's a really, really yeah. moving story. So, Emu, thanks for hanging out with me and talking about it, talking about this stuff. Me from Israel, you from New York, but it feels nice to be able to connect with you and uh, share some of these things and through yeah. that with uh, with our listeners too. Please, please continue to stay safe. And I can tell you that um, it gives all of us great inspiration um, in Aleph Beta that you yourself are, are involved in, in doing everything you can to help on the ground. It brings us joy and inspiration and chizuk, which is really needed. Hopeful that uh, we can go back to regularly scheduled programming um, Program. and everything uh, ends again in, in peace and, and life. I'll say amen to that. All right, Emu. Looking forward to talking to you again.